Hello and welcome to the Shape of Work, a podcast series by Springworks. My name is Anoop and I am your host. Each week we'll be talking to top people managers across the world on the future of work and how it's shaping our workplace. So sit back and get ready to find out more from these movers and shakers as we have a no holds barred anything goes conversation with them about their journey, their insights, their thoughts, and most importantly their ideas and vision for the workplace of the future. Join in on the conversation. Leave a comment and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shape of Work podcast and in this episode we have with us Runam Mehta who is the CEO of HealthQ. Hi Runam, thank you for joining us. Hi Arshad, happy to be here. Likewise. So just to give some sort of background to our listeners, could you please take us through your career journey so far? Sure. I actually studied to be a physiotherapist uh, and I qualified back in 20 uh, 2008. I had clinical practice for a couple of years and uh, then just followed the opportunity. At that time, uh, awareness was quite low and uh, I noticed a lot of uh, patients coming to me from corporate setups uh, who had very similar back and neck issues. So I started an organization to go to the source of problem and started conducting work ergonomic uh, awareness workshops with corporates. So I worked with people like Barclays Bank, PKD Tires, uh, HDFC Life, and uh, quite a few uh, other clients. That was my first uh, uh, stab at entrepreneurship. Uh, I had to stop the company when I moved to Bangalore and I realized the environment in Bangalore was very, very different from my industry. Uh, Portia, which is today India's largest home healthcare company, was just starting out and uh, they were keen to disrupt the home healthcare space. I joined that organization in 2013 as uh, head of product for uh, physiotherapy. And I was with them for seven years. I worked on multiple business verticals. I did their PT strategy for them. Right at the end, I led the home isolation program during the first wave of COVID, which really put Portia on the map at the time. We worked with seven state governments, and I think we helped about over six lakh patients, you know, to get isolated at home. Left Portia to join HealthCube as head of growth and uh, was very quickly promoted to take on as professional CEO. So full disclosure, I'm not the founder of HealthCube. I'm just the professional CEO. Yeah. Okay, amazing journey. So what does HealthCube do? If you could just enlighten us a little bit about it. Sure. So HealthCube is a point-of-care screening device manufacturer. We have designed uh, multiple devices, but our flagship product really uh, is the one I talk about. Uh, it does 30 tests in under 20 minutes, and we've designed for remote and rural use because we are solving for access. So our device is really small. It's like a setup box. And uh, it can work in any part of the country without electricity and without the internet because it uses Bluetooth and it works off a power bank. Essentially, it will help. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll paint a picture, right? So imagine you're in Nagaland and, you know, it's raining and you're cut off from basically civilization and a patient walks in with a really high temperature. And, you know, you know, it's either dengue, malaria or chikungunya because in monsoons, that's what it is. But to take a blood draw, send it to a lab, you know, get the report. It's going to take about two or maybe even three days in a, in a uh, region like that. And what do you do with the patient? Do you send them back with paracetamol? Do you start some kind of an antiviral or an antibiotic and hope that your guess is right? Or if you have the health food device, you simply run these three tests on the spot. And in less than 20 minutes, you know whether he has dengue or chikungunya or malaria. And then you give the appropriate treatment. Another use case would be, uh, you know, a situation person walks in with symptoms which uh, mimic either heartburn or a heart attack 
the fact is those symptoms are very very similar right heaviness in chest feeling of uneasiness and it either needs antacids or it needs hospitalization what do you do if you have the health cube device you have the ability to run your cardiac markers you know check his bp check his heart rate uh, run a 12 lead ecg which comes with a report so even if there's no doctor present in a clinic even if it's just a nurse or a technician they can still run it they'll still get a report and they can use that report to decide whether to you know wait a day or send this patient immediately you know all guns blazing into a hospital so it is basically a, a life saving device in remote rural locations amazing work so when we talk about your career journey you know you started as a practicing physiotherapist and then you went on to become a business manager and now of course the ceo how would you describe like how did this journey unfold for you and what were your learnings if you have to really describe it to someone i think it's a very loaded question how did this journey unfold for me honestly i would love to be able to say that i planned meticulously every stage of my career but i didn't i studied physiotherapy because i wanted to study medicine and mbbs was not an option for me at that time after that i think i just followed opportunities i always knew at that point in time what it is that i wanted to solve for and i picked up the best possible opportunity in front of me and i think honestly for me one thing has led to another for example my first venture wasn't something that i planned for or you know raised funds for or anything of that sort i just saw that i was getting a ridiculous number of patients who had the same problem and you know instead of spending an entire day treating only four or five patients i could just take the solution to the root i just followed that opportunity similarly with porter i was hired as a product manager for physiotherapy which was my core skill set but i'm a marwadi right i come from a family business background i understand business i think that really helped uh, help me grow the business that was in front of me they offered me an opportunity to work on other businesses that were not core to me i didn't understand them as well but at that point i think i was willing to step out of the comfort zone and my ex boss said to me once right that if you know how to sell it doesn't matter what you're selling you can sell soap as well as you can sell physiotherapy yeah selling is a transferable skill and i believe that that's really true there are a lot of transferable skills that we pick up no matter what it is that we do but then we need to take the plunge and transfer those skills to other uh, situations and i think i always got that opportunity plus i grabbed the opportunities that were in front of me and really kind of went from there amazing journey and definitely an inspiring one i mean when i look at it i really want to have a very similar journey in terms of how you have grown over the years so now you're the ceo you obviously must be managing people you have people working with you do you so and you know when we talk about an organization the first thing that comes into our mind is obviously people and these people you know move somehow the organization culture so how would you describe what is the meaning of an organization culture and how does it impact employees in the organization i don't know if i'm really qualified to um, you know define uh, organization culture but i can talk to you about some of the mistakes i've made and what what culture means to me today uh, i'm also sure that if you ask me the same question 5 years later my answer could be dramatically uh, different but i've made a lot of people mistakes especially when i was a first time manager i've uh, i've been too protective i've micromanaged i have um, overshadowed my team uh, never intending to take away credit but really uh, you know taken their successes and per- uh, failures too personally 
uh, which which is not healthy for you know either party really. So I've, I've made all sorts of uh, people mistakes. I've written rude emails. I've been told off for them. I've had complaints written about how rude I can be on email. So all sorts of things have happened. Today, what culture really means to me, I think it's 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 how we interact with each other most of the time, right? So it's not about the one time that things go wrong because they will, but it's about how respectful you are most of the time. It's about how transparent you are with your team. Do they know what the top problems are or are you brushing the problems under the carpet? Are they safe to speak, right? And I, this is something that is a core fundamental belief that I have, that in order to thrive, you need to feel safe, right? Uh, if you're in survival mode, if you're in defense mode, you cannot thrive. You can yeah. obviously live and you can, you know, go from role to role or job to job and still get the work done, but you cannot thrive. So for every individual to bring their best at work, they need to be, they need to feel safe. And, and safety comes in many ways. Safety comes from inclusion. Safety comes from, you know, being allowed to speak up. Safety comes from being respected. Safety comes from you know, many, many, many aspects of it. And that's really what I strive to build in my organization. I strive to build an environment where we are accountable, where, you know, you can you can hold someone accountable while continuing to make them feel safe. You know, you're accountable. You didn't get something done in time. It's cost us, but you're human. Yeah. So I'm not going to insult you. I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to, you know, hold your appraisal or your bonus or whatever it is, you know, uh, over, you know, over, over your head. I'm not, I'm not going to make you things, do things which make you feel like you have to hide your mistakes from me. I'm going to do it in a way that next time you make a mistake, you come to me sooner so that more people can get involved in order to solve that problem. And it's been a year and a half since I am CEO. And I think that is a fundamental change that has happened in our workplace, where by and large, people are transparent, they're accountable, they're respectful, and there is immense amount of trust, psychological safety. Well, I must say it is one of the most you know honest answers that I've heard on this podcast because every time I ask this question to people, people usually say what they feel like. But you know, you owing up your mistakes and you said that how you've learned from it and now obviously you know how to function in a better way is I think a win-win situation. So kudos to you for that. So my next question would be: I was just going through your LinkedIn profile. I must say it's a very interesting one. So. I just read this line or this phrase that you've written that women are treated differently at the workplace. Women leaders are treated differently at the workplace. So what, what, what was your thought behind it? I mean, it's a really interesting one. <laughs> I use uh, LinkedIn to just express myself. And uh, uh, this was a particularly vulnerable post. Uh, I believe that bias is everywhere. Yeah. Okay. And uh, some of it is uh, subconscious, is unconscious, right? But that doesn't mean it does not exist. So I have, I had a colleague, for instance, right? And every time he'd call me, a very well-meaning guy, really, really nice guy. I mean, I genuinely am very fond of him still. Uh, but every time he'd call me, it doesn't matter what he's calling me for. His first question would be about how my daughter is, which I appreciate if he were doing it to my male counterparts, who also have young kids. In fact, another colleague of mine and me, we had kids a month apart. But this is something that that would only, you know, happen to me. He would only call me and first ask after my daughter. And his intent was obviously good. But the point is, if you ask that question to a woman, but you're not asking that to your male colleague, that is bias. 
True. Now, this is obviously, it's not dangerous bias. It's not coming in the way of my growth, but, and also because, you know, he's a colleague and not a superior. But the point is that this is bias. If there is a male colleague who refers to his male superiors when talking in Hindi and, you know, he speak in Hindi as up, but when talking to me, also his superior says, Tum, that is bias. That is me being treated differently. He's automatically according lower respect to me than to a male colleague. I don't think status should get you respect. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that the same behavior needs to be accorded to me as CEO as would be to a male CEO. And these are things that people do without realizing. The stuff they do with realization is often much more dangerous. Yep. Uh, I recently made a hire and I actually had uh, some, you know, very quiet questioning happening around me. Uh, so this lady applied uh, for uh, a marketing role. And at the time when she applied, she wasn't expected. She was the best candidate for the job. We rolled out an offer. Two weeks before she joined, she called me. And I really appreciate the fact that she let me know that in the interim, she had found out that she's conceived. And uh, she said I should completely understand if I felt the need to rescind the offer. I didn't receive the offer. We hired her. She worked with us for eight months. Then she's now off on her maternity. On Women's Day, in fact, she wrote a long post about it. And uh, I don't know if a male, you know, a male would have done the same, right? And what's worse is she would have accepted. She, in fact, expected to not be hired because she's pregnant. No guy will firstly reveal that he's going to have a baby in the next six months when he's joining because it's irrelevant. Right. And even if he is, it has no impact on his joining. Why should it be any different? Since she is the best candidate for the job, why should she be treated differently? Why should she expect to be treated differently? Why should she, she accept being treated differently just because she's pregnant? Yeah. So women are treated differently. The fact is people do it consciously. People do it subconsciously. And people sometimes do it on purpose. But women are treated differently. I absolutely agree with whatever you said and it makes so much sense. I mean, we say that we are living in 20th century or it's 2023, but at the same time, I feel, okay, the change has come. But why do we need to talk about it? I mean, we've come a long way and why can't we just keep the level playing field for everyone at the end of the day? It's the skill that you bring to the table, not where you come from or what your gender is or how do you identify yourself. But at the end of the day, all that matters is that you are able to deliver the work that you're expected. So, the, the entire topic should get closed there itself, which is an amazing thing. So, and I think it's because of, as you said, that women really standing up for women is also very important at the same time because we have all these unbiased and unconscious biases in place. So we do really need, so kudos to you on that. I mean, uh, I hope we have more women and, and men at the same time, you know, standing up for each other, for their colleagues, for their mates, for their people that they work with and for everyone in general. So my next question is definitely going to be around how, you know, you've managed everything. You know, you're a mother, as you say, and I would definitely want to like take it up from you and ask my, uh, you know, the male people that I interview that being a father and the CEO, how do you manage things around? So what keeps Runam going like every day when you wake up? What is that one thing that you have it in you that, okay, I need to go to work. I need to, uh, you know, make a life and a living out of it and you know just keep myself running because I don't know if it is one thing. Uh, honestly, I, I really enjoy my work. 
I've always enjoyed working, whether it was as a clinician, whether it was in Portiat, various roles, or in Health Cube. I, I enjoy being out in the workplace, meeting people, making a difference. Numbers excite me, growth excites me. When I look at, you know, solving problems excites me. So if I look at a PNL and I see that it's not working, I enjoy working on it over a period of time and seeing things change. So work isn't something I do. Work is just it's just a part of my life. It's like, you know, it's like eating your meal or going to the gym or whatever. And uh, I, I think work-life integration is now becoming mainstream. People are talking about it. I first have heard about it from Meena Ganesh when she was the CEO of Portia. And, uh, you know, it struck a chord and it made just so much sense, right? At, at one point in time, I think there was this concept of being at work and, you know, forget everything else. And then when you're at home, you kind of cut out of work. Except that is not the reality of modern life today. The fact is my phone, I have more WhatsApp messages from my uh, colleagues and more WhatsApp groups that are work-related than personal ones. So so work-life integration is really what I strive towards, which means on every day and at any given point in time, I focus on whatever needs me the most. So there are times when that means I am I'm doing a 9 p.m. or a 6 a.m. call because, you know, the client is abroad or I'm doing a Saturday morning workshop or whatever. And at times it means that in the middle of the weekday, I go to school for a parent teacher meeting. And, you know, whatever needs me at that point in time, if my daughter is sick, my daughter is sick, I make no excuses. My daughter is sick. She needs me at home. I'm going to either work from home or I'm not going to work at all today. Versus if there is an important client meeting or if I have to fly out to Delhi on short notice, you know, I do that. And then my husband picks up the slack because the fact is there will be slack, right? If, if there are two working parents, we have to work around each other. I don't believe that the onus of raising my child is on me alone. It is on the two of us. We are two of us, our parents, and we have a nanny. So the three of us really are uh, co-parents. And uh, that's how we do it. So if I'm working late, either the nanny stays late or my husband uh, comes home early. If I am doing work trips or, you know, if the nanny calls in sick, we take turns to take days off. It's not automatically assumed that I will take the time off, right? So if, if I've taken the time off this time, the next time she doesn't show up, you know, it's going to be him who takes the day off and uh, takes care of the child. So I think, yeah, I lean heavily on on people. I lean on my husband. I lean on my nanny. I also lean on my team. If I if I need to be at home with my daughter, then my team has to pull up their socks and probably do stuff that normally I would have done. I remember this was there was this one time I had to go to Delhi and I had lots of meetings lined up because you do that when you're traveling. And then my daughter got really sick and the doctor said it might be typhoid. It wasn't, but it could have been. So I backed out of that trip really at the last minute. And then my head of growth just went ahead and did all the meetings without me with, of course, profuse apologies because people were expecting to see the CEO. But, uh, you know, my daughter could have had typhoid. I, I wasn't going to not be in the city if that had happened. But there was this other occasion where it was an unavoidable trip and, you know, she wasn't doing too well. And I said, you know what, too bad. I can't skip this because uh, I've already paid for a bunch of stuff and uh, I'm going to go. So my husband took three whole days off and just stayed at home with her because she wasn't well. And I went and I did my work trip. So both things happen. And uh, I think you have to just take each day as it comes. I do. I've stopped over planning. Yeah, I have a calendar and I hope to make it. But I roll with it when things go wrong. Yeah, taking each the each day as it comes is like the mantra. And yeah. um, you know, as you said, that it's so inspiring to see 
two people coming together and supporting each other. It's just, I mean, that's how marriages work. So amazing. Kudos on that. So with this, we come to an end of this podcast. Thank you, Dunam, for joining us. It was definitely a very inspiring one. And I hope to meet more women, more people out there who inspire so much and, you know, who are so much aware and are always striving to bring a change. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Arjun. Thank you for having me.